Welcome to episode 330 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Tuesday, 13th of June, 2023. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. In other words, they make the kind of bikes that they want to ride. Turn has e-bikes for every type of rider, whether you're commuting, taking your kids to school, or even carrying another adult. Visit www.turnbicycles.com, that's T-E-R-N, bicycles.com, to learn more. I'm Carlton Reed, and on today's show, I'm talking urban planning and more with Andy Baynow, speaking to me from his home in Virginia, USA. Andy is an award-winning filmmaker, and we talk about his background in transportation and his proposed new documentary, White Collar Epidemic. And you were last on the show in 2019. Do I have to update the the profile picture that we used the last time. And I'm going to say not because I saw you on video a second ago. You look the same. So uh, well, welcome the to thing. the show. When you, make a, when you make deals with the devil, uh, when you're doing <laughs> urban planning work, yeah, <laughs> you get to keep your look. <laughs> yeah, this is why my good looks are, are still the same. Yeah, I, no, I completely agree there. We're, we're the bad ones. We, we do deals with devils and, and, and we continue to look wonderful. Um, and we're going to be talking about uh, a project of yours in, in, in a moment but first of all i'd like to um come on to because people I'm, I'm sure will remember vividly that 2019 show we did with you <laughs> in fact it was about bike share so that can kind of like give people a, a clue because you had a, a bike share book out at that time didn't you that's right. what we were talking about the last time bike yes share. so how did that pan out are, are you still interested in bike share where's your Where's your interest bubbling up right now? My, the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, I'm looking at an oversized poster uh, on an old canvas. It's an old advertisement from um, some French magazine propaganda with a cartoonish uh, woman on a bicycle. Um, I still adore not only bicycles, but bicycling propaganda. Um my Pro- propaganda my, marketing pro- are yeah, we, are we? <laughs> yeah i'm ta- i'm taking back the word i'm taking it back propaganda <laughs> yes because it's messaging like i want to find people okay, okay, i want to okay. find people's emotions i, I want to hook people um because we're silly creatures we like to think that we're logical and we're in so many ways we're just not um and so whatever the thing is whether it's buying diapers for your newborn baby or trying to figure out which bicycle is right for you. Um, it, you need to be able to connect with people. And so at its core, that's what, that's what I do. It's that kind of messaging. And so my entire career, 25 years, has been in mobility or urban planning of some kind. Um, and so I, I developed organically a strong bias for transportation systems where you can walk or ride a bicycle as ways to get around, not only because it's good for the air, good for the environment. Those are happy accidents. And for me, anyway, I I just, I want to be able to get around and I want other people to be able to get around without having to be stuck with only one option being a personal vehicle. And so, yeah, years ago when you and I talked, um, I was working specifically with the bike share company. I was helping them grow out of just doing bike share operations at universities and become more of a shared mobility uh, offering where fleets of electric vehicles would be connected. So scooters, bicycles, trikes, um, low speed electric vehicles, that sort of thing. But my kind of North Star, and this is both for professional work that I get paid for, but just also fun things like uh, street photography has to do with happy, healthy communities. I, I'm a people watcher. I like to see happy people. Um, I want people to be able to live in an environment wherever they are, whether it's a city or a suburb, that doesn't matter, but to be able to be healthy. And what really uh, infuriates me is infrastructure that blocks most of us 
from choosing healthy habits, like walking around here and there, riding a bicycle here and there. But would it, would it be right in thinking that you started your career in, in designing that exact kind of infrastructure? And have you kind of rebelled? Um, that's a great question. Because some would, if, they, if you just read my career arc on a piece of paper, you would say, oh, he's, he's a reformed traffic engineer because <laughs> I began my career as just doing traffic analysis. Mm. And in a sense, yes, uh, I, I was, I was the bad guy, but, but I didn't, I'm not, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's that simplistic that traffic engineering, the, the people in it are, are menaces trying to destroy things around them. What I, the reason why my career has taken the path that it, that it has is, um, and I think why I was different in certain groups that I worked alongside, I didn't know when I started my career what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I still don't really know. I just know that I know things that I enjoy doing. I know a handful of things that I'm decent at. And when I stack those up, it ends up being unique in this infrastructure sort of business planning and design. And so as I was going through analyzing traffic um, for consulting firms, you know, doing these projects for city governments and counties and state DO departments of, of transport, um, I just asked a lot of dumb questions like, why do we do this? Why do we analyze that? Which options do I use as the default settings? And not not coming from some place of know-it-allness, I didn't know I knew, I didn't know anything, <laughs> and so all my questions were always coming from a place of I want to be able to do my work and pay the bills and not have like not have to keep going back to my boss. And along the way, these questions kept being answered with forms of well, this is the way we do it, just because that's how it's always been done. And that doesn't stick well with me. And so I've, I do like transportation and urban planning. It, I like, I, like I said, I'm a people watcher. And so it interests me how people move through space. Um, I, and so the questions that I asked were never about, I'm going to upend an industry or, you know, I'm just going to stick it to the man. I just thought, wow, these, these basic assumptions about how we calculate and then, uh, put judgment values on how much time it takes people to get around. It's not really with the human being at the center. It really is with the machine at the center. And it, I even hearing myself say it, it sounds silly. It sounds absurd. But that is the heart and soul of modern traffic analysis. And it's, it's kind of silly to me. And so when you just, when you put it you know, back to why I use the word propaganda or messaging on purpose. When you put these things in just plain language for people to understand how it is that we analyze how people get around, it sounds so bonkers that you can't think it's possibly true. So a human being sitting in a vehicle waiting for, say, 60 seconds for a red light to turn green, that's considered unacceptable delay. But if a human being, that same human being, is standing at the corner of the intersection and they have to wait 60 seconds to cross the street, that's considered totally fine. In fact, if they, if that person standing wants to complain, well, they should walk to the next block and wait. Maybe there's a shorter wait over there. Like go five minutes out of your way or, or 10 minutes out of your way. So it's that sort of thing when you... And can I just, can I just, sorry, can I just stop yeah. you there? Because uh, before you then segue off into a different subject there, <laughs> I just want to zero in because I'm going to use your background here uh, in, in, in what you were doing and, and, and exactly what you said there about the, the what we would call in the UK, a traffic light, a stoplight for right. pedestrians. So it's a conscious decision by the municipality, by the traffic engineers at the end of the day to a certain an, a certain amount of time for, as you said, the machine and a certain amount of time for the human. So they are presumably doing that, A, consciously, B, using figures, using data. So, or is it just a, a bias in that, no, the car should have more time, the motorist should have more time, more time than the pedestrian. So how is that figured out, that, that timing? It's so there's a lot in there. Um, before I tell you about like how it's figured out, I think one of the the reasons why, because this is probably also something that's on people's mind. Well, why would this be? Why would people 
consciously go along with it because yes there are there still are in the year 2023 human beings operating the software programs to analyze traffic and i think so much of this goes back to the education system where we are trained to conform not trained to be intellectually curious and if you challenge how things are done just the act of challenging it is seen as oh you're now part of an out group even if your goal is i want to understand how it is we do this so that i the engineer or the planner can do my job better you're you're expected to conform not only at the individual kind of and team level but then also at corporate levels and local agency level uh, the municipality level people in these businesses are expected just to just go with the flow um, how it's calculated is it's an, it's another one of those silly things where you if you were to tell a child uh, a 10 year old they, they would say no that, that can't possibly be if mm-hmm. there's these tables that you refer to to determine whether or not the delay at the stoplight or stop sign is uh, air quotes acceptable or not and they have this genius way of getting us to agree with acceptable and unacceptable and that is using letter grades just like you got in school and so a b c d f everybody wants an a and then everybody's like well maybe if you get a b okay maybe not everyone can be an a student but at least i got a b but if you're getting c's and f's on your stuff come on i like no your parents are going to start asking questions right and so if if i'm regularly turning in work that's getting d's and f's somebody's going to go wait andy's got problems here he needs to get with the program that's how they label intersection analysis and so if a car only has to wait you know 10 seconds 15 seconds that's good level of service a so good grade good job if if the person sitting at the light in a car has to wait a whole whopping minute that is unacceptable f uh and now if you've got an f what are we going to do about it well what can we do to get this grade up to a we probably need more space for cars not just to to drive along a corridor, but to stack up at the front of the intersection so that when the light goes green, boom, they can all head off. And so that means, of course, more lanes to get people clo- to get cars closer to the front line. So it's kind of like if you picture the NASCAR, uh, I, I'm not a NASCAR fan, but like a car race where you have, uh, so I, I'm, kinda, I'm, I'm speaking in an area that I don't know a lot about, but I can picture the starting line um, or, the, or even the finish line. If you imagine all of these cars next to each other, uh, that's the kind of thinking behind standard traffic analysis, that if if you get a bad grade on your report card, then you need to make more space up at the front so that you don't have a queue of people waiting. And what happens when you do that is anybody else on any, so any anybody sitting on the car on the side street, they're having the same issue as the main street uh, or the high street. Um, they've got to have as little delay as possible. So pretty soon, you've got two left turn lanes, uh, multiple lanes going through. You've got a separate slip lane um, to the right. Uh, I'm going to have to reverse all these for for people in countries where they drive mm-hmm. on the wrong side of the road. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, as you expand the the streets and the intersections, if you're walking or riding a bicycle to get around, now not only do you have to wait a while for it to be your turn to cross the street, but once you start crossing, like forget the safety implications for a second, just the time it takes you to walk across all of that pavement is wild. So these two things, these kind of human being on foot or or on a saddle and human being inside of a machine are treated very, very differently. Mm. But isn't that... You know, you, you're, you described motor normativity. You've described car brain, as, yes. as some people like to call it. But isn't that 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, maybe, thinking, and the modern traffic engineer who came after you, Andy, the, the ones today, they're not thinking differently, and they're no longer using such, such crazy mm, a car brain uh, tables to work things out. Uh I wish that it was so. I, w- <laughs> I wish that there was reform. I mean, the, the thing is, uh, there each, I think 
each generation and then subgroups within generations, there's um, there's some hope put in them that, oh, this group of people, they've learned this thing, they're now enlightened, they will do better. But then what happens is they get to the workplace and they have a mentor who reminds them either uh, explicitly or implicitly, we're about conformity, like go with the flow. This is how we do things. It's just the way it is. I wish things were different, but this is just the way it is. So all of these decades later, it's no different. I remember um, near the start of my career, there were some, I, I would hear things, occasionally there would be somebody interviewed on something like uh, NPR in the US, you know, uh, public radio, um, kind of a niche interview with somebody who would have these ideas about uh, a mixture of traffic calming and livable places and how great this could be if we were to reform the transportation industry. And as I got into my career, um, I started hearing things like, well, younger people these days, you know, the, I'm a Gen Xer, so the millennials coming up behind me, millennials don't care so much about car ownership. They're more mm. interested in the environment. And so there were these news stories that would pop up that would suggest, hey, things are going to change because the next generation, this next group of people coming in, when they get to the office, they're going to be different. And it's, it's just not happening. Um, whether or not they want to. So maybe they care differently about social issues or environmental issues than the people before them, but that doesn't matter if they're not putting their ideas into action. What still happens at the office is the same as it ever was. It's land use rules in, in the United States. We have a, most of these things are local, local municipal rules that dictate where you can build different types of buildings, um, different types of land uses. So, if you live in a house, you go over here. Oh, you want a small house? Okay, that's a different zone. You need to go live in this zone. If you want to make, uh, have a shop or a market, those belong in this zone over here. And so then the planners have all these rules that lead to car-oriented roads to connect all of those zones. And then you've got the traffic analysis that comes behind it and says, okay, we've analyzed all the traffic going between these zones. They're back to the letter, the letter grades. We're not getting good enough grades. We need to add more infrastructure for the cars. And it's just this never-ending thing because I, I think a major part of it is this, this issue of conformity. It's just you just are supposed to go with the flow and not stop and say, wait a second. If we are here to serve the public interest, to, to deliver infrastructure that is helping people, this thing that we're doing, this process, is not helping so is there a different process that would get to the outcome which we want, which is vibrant places, healthy places, uh, safer places? I want to give you an anecdote, actually. And, and, and that, this is very personal to me. Um, and, and, and when you're making your points, I, I was kind of thinking of it. And that was there's a, a bike lane put in, in in my home city of Newcastle upon Tyne. And... It's a very wide bike lane. It's in many uh, ways, it's a, it's a very good bike lane. But what it's done is made my journey through into, into Newcastle city centre longer if I follow that protected bike lane. And that's because the stoplight, which they put in the middle, whereas before I was in with the traffic in effect, I'm not being vehicular cyclist about this, but before there wasn't a huge amount of traffic on this road anyway, because it had all been filtered elsewhere. Uh, but I, I would go with the, the traffic lights and I would go um, reasonably fast. Now they put this protected bike lane in, but at a, at a, at a junction, there's like an hour four-way, perhaps even more uh, stoplight where everybody's got to go through. So now as a cyclist, you've got to wait there for an enormous amount of time to cross. And then when, when it goes green, you know you've got like just a few seconds, whereas the motorists get loads of time. You know, they get like, five, six cars, you know, they get maybe four times the amount of time as the poor cyclists get. So I now no longer use that world-class, superlative, very expensive bike path. I will often use the the road just because the engineers, the traffic engineers, you, through their timings of this these lights have made my uh, transit through that area much, much longer. Now they could, if they want the reverse car brain, they could make it longer for the motorists and it could be, you know, super fast for the cyclists. 
spending all that money on this great bike lane and they've just in my point of view they've blown it mm -hmm. yeah i've seen that sort of thing in the u.s also uh and one of one of the common bits is you'll see you'll see things described as bike infrastructure that is nothing at all it's the word infrastructure is just silly to apply there it's a, a stripe of paint on a road that's essentially a highway where um motorists are going 55 miles an hour and just right next to the elbow of somebody riding a bike so you're never gonna a normal person even a, a well-abled adult is not going to ride there let alone your wobbly children or wobbly senior citizens um it, it's frustrating because yes we then if you want to ride a bicycle as transport you end up finding a different route even if it is circuitous and it adds 10 or 15 minutes because you'd rather arrive alive um and it gets i think it gets to the heart of this issue of why are you what's the outcome of your traffic analysis and your road design is it safety is our number one priority which many departments of transport or public works that's their slogan is that really your your mission or is your mission to make driving as convenient as possible and i argue in practice it like it doesn't matter what your policy says if in practice you are making driving the most convenient thing and not only driving but driving often fast or recklessly that's that's the real kicker mm. now on your website uh if you don't mind me saying so it almost doesn't read as though it's a, you know a transportation expert website you know you, you, of course you, you have that on there and you have all your your credentials etc but it's talking about storytelling it's almost as though this is like, you know, an actor or a writer's website. So you, you, right at the top, it says create, distribute and amplify stories. And then, you know, the, the, the text below is storytelling, storytelling, storytelling. So why do you think you have to tell stories? And what are the stories that you're you're trying to tell? Uh, that's a fantastic question. I love that. Um, I learned through so this is this is a shift since you and i last spoke where my throughout my career working in planning or or engineering for transport systems or for for downtown areas you know mixing bicycling and walking and transit and all those sorts of things my work was project to project so it was a specific thing like this corridor we were tr we are doing something on this particular corridor um, in the last few years, I've been freelancing, or as I say now, storyteller for hire, and all, but related to the built environment. But why it's so important? The the very I'll I'll tell you briefly why it's important, and then I'll tell you how I discovered this. It's important because that's how human brains are wired. We, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this. Many people have said humans are wired for story. Like go back to cave days. Uh, any point in human history, if it's just a campfire, if it's peers getting together, if it's old friends, if it's new friends, whatever, whenever people congregate, two or more, we tell each other stories, even if it's just an itty bitty story, uh, or if you're me and you tell a long winded one, uh, that's how we communicate. We we talk to each other, we convey information through anecdotes. We don't just simply list facts and that's it, we're done. Uh, we and it's especially true if we're trying to persuade someone. Then, then we absolutely have to integrate stories because that's what makes somebody turn their head and go, oh, "Wait a second, what? I I need to hear more about that." Either because they're delighted by something, or they're outraged by something, or they're hopeful about something. Like whatever the emotion is, that kind of stuff comes out of storytelling. So I discovered this. Uh, because I happened to enjoy advertising. Um, I, I was fascinated by propaganda campaigns of World War II um, from all of the countries that were involved because it's interesting in the sense that simple things like posters with slogans and, um, and illustrations were moving people to action of some kind. And th this is not only true for wartime, but those just happen to get so much attention that it's easy for people to picture something in their mind like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen those before. 
But the same is true or was true for uh, like cigarette advertising. Um, things like four out of five doctors recommend camel cigarettes uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. Like whatever the product is, people who make stuff and need to sell stuff, they understand how to tell stories to get people's buy in that case buying behavior to to alter or how you think about a particular issue or a social issue so i was trying as i was learning about that stuff i was applying it to my technical work so if i was helping to write a proposal for uh, a traffic study or in a downtown master plan you know long-range plan about how you deal with the land use i started incorporating that kind of storytelling that I was learning about into the proposal, into cover letters, into how I did slide design. And, and it kept working. And I know it was working because I would ask, I would go to meetings after we would win, win these contracts and ask questions so that I could be better the next time. And I, and far, far, far be it for me, well, sorry for stopping you, but far be it for me to, to poo poo that idea. But does this not also say that anecdote? beats data so you could be a traffic engineer for instance let's just say who's got this great set of data on for instance a low traffic neighborhood and 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 how what we have in the uk and how you know if you restrict cars um with you know 21st century uh, traffic engineering uh, thinking you then reduce congestion and um you improve air you've got the data that says that however members of the public with anecdotes say no it's not like that my life has been made hell so the storytelling actually trumps actuality so do you not see that storytelling is potentially has problems you, you could be spinning lies here andy by using your excellent storytelling techniques when you should be using hard data so how do you square that circle it's the you're right in the sense that any anything's possible. Uh, I mean, the fact that humans are able to speak is wonderful and terrible at the same time. Uh, I mean, I, I, I've joked that I'm an extrovert and we extroverts think that everything that comes out of our mouth is important. Uh, that's not great. Um, so on the one hand, yes, anything could uh, come out. But I compare this uh, when I'm when I'm talking about stories and and data. I compare this to the voting booth. So if you were to, if two different people who play politics uh, go into a voting booth and they're given a piece of paper that has the, the, same, t- the same piece of paper, a list of 10 indisputable facts, and they're asked, based on these 10 indisputable facts, which politician is going to serve us better? And these two people will pull different levers and they're both convinced that their person, their team, is going to address these indisputable facts in the better way. So that's one way that I connect that idea of data and stories. The other is, it's not. I'm not suggesting that people just spin stories without any data. The trick is using data to tell stories. Mm-hmm. If you, what what's really fun though? I mean, I I find. I, uh, I take sick pleasure in in uh, trolling people who don't do this, um, but if somebody, if you catch somebody like a road designer or a traffic engineer or uh, somebody from the planning department who is making a claim without data, they do, they so you you know they don't really know what they're talking about. Then it's extra fun because you can take what you know to be true and make some excellent stories. And when I in story, I that is not equivalent to lies that is just mm. simply a narrative it's or some kind of uh there's a beginning middle end there's a conflict there's a resolution you know that that's what i mean when i say story um you you are going to be the most effective when you take some facts and then do something with it so for example mm. like one simple thing with with traffic safety in the u.s i know and this is it's it's not exact every single year but about 100 Americans are killed in traffic every single day. So that's, that is a stat, a statistic. I can use that in different ways and in different stories. Or another one would be our local governments 
um, in their zoning rules that dictate where you can live, where you can shop, uh, where you do all the different things. Like they're very, when you look at those, those rules, they're very rigid. And so if I look at that, I can take a fact like you're not, you're only allowed to have a certain type of home here. And I can say something true from that data, which is, this is interesting. You outlaw townhouses, or I don't know, maybe you call it row homes, but narrow attached homes. Like a hmm. lot, a lot of places in America outlaw those. When you tell someone that, it sounds so ridiculous, it can't possibly be true. It is true, but if I don't put it in a way that hooks them, that catches them, that makes them go, wait a second, what? It's illegal to have a townhouse? Well, yes, in a whole lot of areas, it is illegal to have a townhouse. So that's, that's the kind of way that I say use data to tell stories. Okay. Yeah, so I, I wasn't saying you were lying by using stories. <laughs> and I appreciate you kind of like, you know, you, you can use stories for, for, for good, of course. You can, as you say, you know, humans have, uh, have uh, used stories forever and a day to get across their point of view. And, and, and whether that's a politician or, in fact, a, a storyteller. Now, after the break, uh, we are going to talk about white collar epidemic. But right now, let's go across to David for a brief intermission. Hello, everyone. This is David from the Fredcast and, of course, the Spokesman. And I'm here once again to tell you that this podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn build bikes that make it easier for you to replace car trips with bike trips. Part of that is being committed to designing useful bikes that are also fun to ride. But an even greater priority for Turn is to make sure that your ride is safe and worry-free. And that's why Turn works with industry-leading third-party testing labs like EFBE and builds its bikes around Bosch e-bike systems, which are UL certified for both electric and fire safety. So before you even zip off on your turn, fully loaded and perhaps with a loved one behind, you can be sure that the bike has been tested to handle the extra stresses on the frame and the rigors of the road. For more information, visit www.turnbicycles.com to learn more. And now, back to the spokesman. Thanks, David. And uh, we're back with uh, Andy Bernal. And we are um, going to be talking about White Collar Epidemic, which is Andy's uh, 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 forthcoming project. But first of all, I want to go backwards. Not, not to what we were talking about before the, the break, Andy, but... Um, the awards that you've won. So this, this White Collar Epidemic is a proposed film. But first of all, tell me about your previous films, because I see on your on your website, your storytelling website, uh, where it says uh, you've uh, 2013, 2014 and 2015, you won awards for short films at the new Urbanism Film Festival. So what what were those three films? Those were Walk, Don't Walk, uh, Street Exploitation. And War on Congestion. All three were short, I would call them mockumentaries, uh, <laughs> where I was making up true stories, like we were just talking about. Um, having come out of the world of traffic analysis and transportation planning and traffic safety, I know how things are done. I, like, I know how projects go from start to finish. And so it frustrates me how they move. And so I took that and put it in short film version. So that first one, Walk, Don't Walk, was essentially, that's what really got me excited about doing these kinds of projects because I realized there aren't people, especially not that long ago, talking about these issues of how we move around in space, how we use public space in a way that normies would pick up on and understand. We're so used to using jargon like intersection level of service and functional classification and um, even even with urban planning, well-meaning people like walkability. This is a term I use. There are terms mm. like that that they get used so much that it becomes almost wallpaper. It's just in the room, and you you kind of forget about it. Um, and so I wanted to take some of these ideas where I know hey, there's a problem out there, and it's gonna get worse unless we intervene. But wait, 
there is a way to intervene and things can get better in the end. Because I know I'm, I am an eternal optimist, but I know I'm right. Things can get better in the end. So we've established that you're uh, award-winning. How, how long were those short films, by the way? How short were, were they? They're uh, between, I think each of them is between 11 and 15 minutes. I think the longest okay. one is 14. Okay. So they're not like, you know, Instagram short. They're not like one minute. They are you know, 10, 15 minute uh, uh, documentaries. Now, the one that you've got, you, 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 you're crowdfunding for now, White Collar Epidemic, which we'll, we'll start talking about, how long do you think that one's going to be? Is that going to be longer or is that going to be like another 15 minute one? It'll be a, a solid hour. And in fact, cool. um, at first I was thinking maybe 70 or 80 minutes, but then I've been, um, I've been getting some advice from other filmmakers, more, much more established uh, filmmakers. And um, that's where I settled on uh, an hour is probably the sweet spot from those advisors. And it's in part because there's just so much to pack in. Um, I was I was talking with a journalist yesterday about this, uh, that there are so many uh, smaller personal story arcs that I'm finding that this, I, I think, long-term really needs to be a series. Uh, it, it, whether, you know, how that ends up coming to fruition, I'm not sure yet, but I know what I can control right now, and that is make a one-hour-long documentary. And so that that's where I find myself. And it's still... This one is different for me because it's bringing in an industry that I am not an expert or I, I don't have expertise in. I do on the infrastructure side, of course, but this is mm. linking two things, uh, infrastructure and health. And the premise came out of just this. I, I mean, there were a few things happening a few years ago. Uh, and as I was jotting notes in my in my personal idea book, um, I put something, I wrote something down to the effect of a doctor prescribes walking, but the patient is unable to fill the prescription. And mm. that, that note to myself was because I was, I was reading articles and blogs that people were sending me about doctors in the United States who were doing just that. They were writing prescriptions, but instead of pills, it was for active living. It was take a walk once a day or ride a bicycle once a week. But if you're in the States, most, most of us, whether it's a city or a county, that doesn't matter. Most people in America, if they get that prescription and they walk outside of the doctor's office and they look at the street or the, the network around them, they go, how can I possibly fill this prescription? There's no way. So a doctor is going to tell you riding a bike will help treat your anxiety and your depression. But good luck. You, you can't, you can't do what he's saying. So doctors know, and this, this is what the, the title might change, but tentatively, this is where it came from, that healthy activity is prohibited by design. So you've got on the one hand, this one group of white collar professionals, the medical community, where they're saying, this is what's good, or these things are good for the human mind and the human body. And it you know, has to do with movement and getting around. Um, interacting with other people, being social, they know what's good for us. Then you have this other group of white collar professionals, highly educated. That's the infrastructure community. They're saying, hmm, nice try, not going to get it. Uh, it. It gets back to what you were describing before. Even if they do something like put down a white stripe and say, that's a bike lane now. Nobody's using it because it's, it's just awful. And so by design, infrastructure does not fit healthy activity, healthy living or active living. So that's, that's kind of the rub. So I, I want this to be focused on that, on highlighting that conflict to show people there's a lot that can be done to improve mental health and physical health, but there's something blocking and it's not just a something, it's an entire profession of very smart, well-educated people. Um, and it's, it's, it, I mean, it's kind of, it's crushing. It's, uh, so I know the the types of physical impacts that I already knew about with infrastructure were things like doing traffic safety work for years, um, crash injuries. And so car on car crashes, car on bike, car on pedestrian, like I understand that very well in terms of physical health. What I've been learning a lot about and realizing I just had no idea how bad things were is things like 
the top 10 causes of death in America can all dramatically be reduced by active living. So, and it's, it's not like going to the gym necessarily and pumping iron and running on a treadmill and then going back home where that, that could be fine, but just, it doesn't even have to be that intense. Um, and so in the U S we have things like one in two Americans has a chronic disease and, uh, the numbers keep going up, but I think it's one in three are obese right now. Um, and then something that doctors have been studying for, uh, I think this is going on 25 years where, People who do not live in a neighborhood that's walkable, as, as mm. in they can easily walk to, say, a market or a, or a pharmacy um, or you know, whatever. 15-minute cities, Andy. You, you can yes, almost yes, say. there we go. Yes. There we go. Okay. We'll be extra controversial and say yes, people who yes. don't live in the 15-minute cities. Um, Let's but get if those keywords in. Good, if good, they're good. trapped, <laughs> I, I, the, the flip would be if they have to take a car everywhere. Those people have higher rates of obesity, higher rates of heart disease and diabetes, and then and a bunch of other ailments. And so that kind of like the beginning of my career when I was just asking dumb questions like, why is this? Why do we do this? Learning these things about uh, just physical health was jarring to me because sure, it makes sense that if you move around, you won't, you won't gain as much weight. But the extent of your body's damage by not having regular movement was was pretty eye-opening to me. And then also the other thing that I would say that was really eye-opening was just how strongly the connections are between humans being active and their mental wellness. Um, so anxiety and depression are by far the big ones, but then also other things that are, are harder to pinpoint, like cognitive decline or creativity. Um, they, they've been researching that, this to, to show when people are moving around when they're active, they're way more likely um, for their brains to stay intact for far longer than if they're just seated and alone and isolated. And it's not that doctors have answered why behind all of that, but they do know this correlation that there, these things happen together, that when people are stuck in a car dependent area, they are more likely to experience these bad things. And so that's why I say like we hear headlines every year about infrastructure is crumbling, infrastructure is crumbling. And I'm saying that's only the first part of the sentence. The full sentence is infrastructure is crumbling our minds and bodies. Mm. So and on the you say that infrastructure coming our minds and bodies on the, the YouTube video uh that's on your 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 seed and spark pitch there but under the 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 third one down the third line down it says watch the quest to legalize healthy neighborhoods what do you mean by legalize healthy neighborhoods so that's that's part of the storytelling based on data um so in the united states we have local land use rules for and this is this is generally true where it's not usually the state level that tells you how exactly a neighborhood has to be designed. But at the local level, we have these rules, for example, like I mentioned to you about townhouses, where townhouses are often outlawed. Another example would be, you're not allowed to have a front yard business. So let's say you have a, a garage next year. You could be in a single family dwelling. This is not about living in a sky rise in, a, in Manhattan or something like that. Just in a normal, in a normal neighborhood. You're not allowed to just have uh, a garage converted to a barbershop or a nail salon or um, a tax um, accountant, you know, something like that. It's, whatever it is, you're just, you're not allowed. It's illegal to mix the business with the residential. It's illegal in, in most of these places to have a corner market. So you end up having to drive to the grocery store or to the market. You can't just walk a block or a couple of blocks to the market. Or restaurants or pubs, you can't have those in neighborhoods. It's outlawed by local land use rules. And so what I'm pushing on people, I'm using those that language very intentionally. I, I want to deliberately remind people this is not accident. This, I mean, this is not an, an accidental circumstance that we find ourselves like, oh, if only our forefathers had thought ahead and developed mixed-use neighborhoods. No, this is active rules that are still on the books today that prevent you from living 
in a place where you could walk to these things. It, it's, um, that's how I want to legalize it. I want, and this is part of the, what I hope is the outcome of this film, is highlighting for people this huge problem of how infrastructure and health are uh, currently going at each other. Like, they're in conflict. And I want people to see there are ways at the local level to make things better. So this is not about who's president of the United States or even who your state senators are. This is at the local level. If you make enough noise, you can make change. And so that that's what I want. I, I'm not, this is not about preaching at people that they should always ride their bike everywhere, even though uh, I, I think the bike is a wonderful tool to get around. This is about highlighting a conflict that has not yet been talked about in the documentary format. And when when uh, this documentary comes out, this is an hour or eventually a series, whatever. Where is it going to be distributed? How are you going to be? Is this uh, like film festivals? Where do you see it being broadcast? It'll be a that's a yes and as they say. Uh, hmm. It's um, I, I want it to be as widely distributed as possible. So uh, I'm going to be if I can raise enough funding for the film festival entries. The more that I'm able to raise, the more. Um, festivals that I will I will put it in, uh, but then also just old fashioned networking. I'm I'm gonna once it's done, um, I'm gonna reach out to as many people in my network about this regularly about this. Um, find some influential people who can help amplify, and then of course some of the folks that have already volunteered to contribute to it are fantastic people. I mean they're. They're loaded with information on their own. I've seen the list. It's a, it's a good list. Anne Sussman, Chris Bruntlett, who's been on the show, of course, with his wife, um, who's Dutch Cycling Embassy uh, in, in Vancouver. Um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of people. So are these, are these in the can? Uh, or the, are you going to be going to these people? H- how many of these I'm- interviews have you done and how many are still to be done? They're, they're fantastic people. And I've had... Um, I call I called it pre-interviews with all of them. So we we recorded um, with every so every person listed on the website. I've done a short recording with uh, because there's they have a couple of areas of not just bias but perspective uh, about some of these some of the areas that inter that that are involved in this conflict of health and infrastructure. And I'm not, I wasn't asking any one of them to be the over an overarching expert in this issue. Um, but they all bring something very important. So the reason why I have so many people in here is I know that there are so many potential ways that this, the kind of main storyline of the documentary can go. I also know that 20 different people, that's, I can't have 20 different storylines. That's just going to be uh, overwhelming. Um, so I don't know for sure what the final stories are going to be. So when part of the crowdfunding for this, this film is to make it possible for me to, as I narrow down the stories, uh, which is one of the things I'm doing right now to then be able to go in person and do what, what you would say is a traditional kind of in-house interview format, um, with the lean team that I've got. So that's um, that's the plan. But all of these folks were, and there are even more who have since uh, said that they want to be able to contribute in some way. I just, but we haven't we haven't gotten them on film. But it's it's fascinating to me that there are so many people who, both in health and in infrastructure, as soon as I give them the pitch of this just this idea that a doctor prescribes healthy activity that another group says cool story bro you can't get that they it hits them quickly they're like yes that's true and yet the industry as a whole is just not budging and and i think a lot of it just goes back to how we're siloed in different uh areas like traffic safety is one silo and land use planning is another silo and architecture and cognitive design that ann sussman works on that's another silo and they don't interact with each other. They don't have, they're not incentivized to interact with each other. Um, and, and so because of that, we, the human being that just wants to get around, we suffer the consequences. Hmm. So this, you, you're using, 
And this is a, a platform I'm not familiar with because I've used Kickstarter in the past, Seed and Spark. So it, that's like Kickstarter, yeah? But do you, do you do you get your money even if you don't reach the total? Because of Kickstarter, if you don't hit your total, you don't get any money. So how does this one, how does Seed and Spark work? Seed and Spark is very similar to Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Uh, mm. It was made specifically for filmmakers. And so um, years ago, I had done something with Kickstarter. Uh, this is one where you need to raise 80% of your goal before it's greenlit. Um, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to get there. But it, but it is one of those things like you've got to get the vast majority. 80% is what you need to get, so which for this project is about... $10,000. The goal, the overall goal for this is $12,000, which includes all the production, uh, travel, the interviews, all that kind of stuff, the in, in-person um, stuff, and then uh, B-roll along with some of these stories that are coming out. So this is going through the month of June. We've got um, 21 days left as of recording, so about three weeks. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then we'll see where we stand. And then once once we get to the end of this uh, crowdfunding, assuming that it's successful, um, I'll be I'll be well on my way to scheduling FaceTime with these great folks, and then also adding in some some local stories in in a couple of cities where not people they aren't experts in their field; they're just people who have been on the receiving end of unhealthy infrastructure, and those stories need to be told. So this is seedandspark.com. The URL is, is, is way too long to actually say this on air, but basically yeah, you search can... for either your name or probably easier because your name is quite difficult to spell. It uh, is. I make it hard. <laughs> well, it's not even me. It's my forefathers. I, yes, so yes. I made a short White link. collar I epidemic. I, you can search you... for that. You could also yeah. go to urbanismspeakeasy.com slash film. Thanks to Andy Bain out there, and thanks to you for listening to episode 330 of the Spokesman Podcast, brought to you, as always, in association with Turn Bicycles. Show notes and more can be found at the-spokesman.com. The next episode features the Midwest correspondent for The Economist, Daniel Knowles. We talk about his new book, Carmageddon, But meanwhile, get out there and ride.